This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 16th of July 2019. And today we have both special guest and talking about something that we know little about, which is just, just the best of all worlds. Way to set us up to be impossible to fail, I guess. <laughs> Both, both know little about and yet have very strong opinions on, which is just my favourite kind of conversation. Um, they're probably mm. underselling us a little bit, or at least underselling me a little bit. There, there are some of this that I, I do have a, uh, a good background on and have a very strong... Uh, I certainly have very strong feelings about, for sure. But, uh, no, really? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And maybe some of that comes across. You never know. <laughs> Well, but, maybe just uh, to uh, enlighten our audience a little bit, we're going to be talking about the state of the developer ecosystem in 2019. According to a survey as created by JetBrains, anyway. Yes, and that uh, is uh, an important thing to keep in mind while you listen to this episode. Uh, apart from that, as you said, we, had a, we have a guest on as well. Yep. And uh, I think uh, he can speak for himself, so should we uh, get right to it? So today we welcome a special guest who uh, is no stranger to the podcast, uh, Ward Becker. Welcome back. Hey Dave, welcome. Good to be here again. Hi, Thanks Ward. very much. So uh, Ward actually pointed me towards an article that I thought was interesting and immediately my response back to him was, how about talking about it on the podcast? <laughs> so we're, we're here today... Uh, to talk about, I mean, I guess it was triggered by this JetBrains um, DevOps survey, but I think I think the the conversation will probably sort of meander around DevOps as a whole, um, which is at least ever so slightly entertaining for me, given that that I have never been a DevOps engineer. <laughs> so you know, take take that with take every single thing I, that you hear from me certainly over the next uh, thirty to forty five minutes with a a large uh, um, shovel of salt. Um, how about you, Ward? What's your what's your DevOps experience? My DevOps experience. Well, uh, the the funny thing is, um, I started out actually as a developer, so I've been in development for for a long, long period, um, almost. Uh, Afraid to mention how long, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're the youngest on the podcast, I think, so you have nothing to worry about. <laughs> oh, 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 wow! Okay, you're really old then. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so I've, I've so, uh, so just to give the audience a, a bit of an idea is like uh, I was developing when Pearl was still cool. So. Um, I didn't check for the last ten years, but uh, I think Pearl is uh, is considered legacy nowadays, uh, and all the cool kids uh, moved on to um, fun languages like JavaScript and all that kind of stuff. And uh, during my time, uh, there was also Don't not go. a thing like everything's go now. Nothing else. Go. Oh, go. Oh, yeah. Sorry, oh, man. Just yeah. <laughs> I missed the train already. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so. During my time, um, there was not, no, no such thing as uh, Kubernetes. So there was stuff uh, like uh, uh, Puppet uh, that was mm -hmm. basically uh, maturing. 
but there was not not uh, like a DevOps, DevOps movement as we now uh, now know. And it, so for me, uh, being out of uh, full time d- development, uh, uh, d- development of programming uh, for for quite some time, it's, it's quite interesting to see how that ecosystem developed um, and looking at all the tooling that is now there and. Uh, it was actually quite interesting because I looked at this uh, uh, DevOps uh, overview, uh, so um, the questionnaire that was uh, done by JetBrains, uh, and I looked. Okay, there's so much different tooling that I don't know, and I don't know the difference. Uh, so, what's for example the difference between Ansible and Puppet and Chef and Salt and PowerShell, Bash Shell? So it it is a whole big world, um, and uh, what I found. Uh, from the DevOps JetBrains uh, query, I found it very interesting to see, okay, what's actually being used? Because um, when you look at some other um, sites, um, for example, you have those ecosystems overviews. You you might have seen them, right? It's like a a big PDF with all kinds of squares and every square is a company or a product. And it's divided in all kinds of sections, uh, categories. And if you look at some of them that are created around DevOps or, for example, around uh, native cloud computing, there are a lot of companies there. And um, yeah, it's it's sometimes it's like, okay, I can imagine if you're new to all this, uh, like I'm away from uh, full-time development and you come in that market and it's like, okay, um, paradox of choice. Which one do I need to pick? Which one um, makes sense, right? Huh? Yeah. Say again? Yeah. Analysis paralysis. Analysis paralysis, definitely. So, and and so I think um, there, there are multiple types of uh, DevOps state of the union reports uh, online. But um, this one was done by, by JetBrains. Uh, they inquired over 7,000 or 70,000, I believe of their uh, users. So it's a little bit skewed to the ecosystem of uh, JetBrains, which is uh, well known for a lot of the um, popular IDEs. Uh, so like, uh, for example, Android Studio or IntelliJ, uh, ReSharper, for example, is also a good example. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I definitely think it, it gives a good overview of, if you look from a developer side, mm-hmm. what is now popular and um, what is now growing um, what is now basically the trend uh, that there is in the market? Because I, I think, and you probably will agree as well, is like if there is a trend, it's better to go with a tool that has the most traction. Because yeah. if it has the most traction, you know, there's a lot of documentation available. There's a lot of uh, question and answers on Stack Overflow. And uh, basically, you have much better support from uh, also the bigger organizations, right? Uh, so if you t- yeah. take something like Kubernetes, which we'll probably will talk about a little bit more l- later on, um, yep. every cloud provider supports Kubernetes. So if you choose that, I think you have a lot of uh, choice and you have a lot of flexibility. So um, I think that is really helpful from these types of um, overviews is to, to see, okay, what's really being used in the market and uh, choose the one that is growing and is the biggest uh, because that do, those usually are the safe bets. And, it, and and definitely if you use that and you find, for example, an issue that's very specific to your situation, you might choose to go with the second uh, uh, runner-up, let's say, or the third one. Uh, but 
uh, yeah, uh, chase, stay with the safe one um, if you don't have any very specific reason for it. Uh, I would kind of nuance it a little bit and say that, sure, look at the the, the, the highest used one or the best promoted one, whatever, on, those, on these surveys. But do yeah. look at like three surveys over three years. Because uh, a lot of these open source things have very good longevity and that's great. But sometimes something gets hyped for some reason and then disappears again. So if you just go for one of these uh, um, surveys and pick the biggest one, I would always go and look at the one from last year and see, okay, was it also up and coming or already over its hype hump or whatever, just to avoid having a um, uh, yeah the, 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 the darling of today and uh, being stuck with it afterwards. Because the advantage of open source is that everything moves a lot faster. The disadvantage of open source is that everything moves a lot faster. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it might also be worth, just in case there's anyone that's been living in a cave for the last 10 years, um, in which case, welcome. Uh, and I'm honoured that this would be the first thing you listen to. Um, I mean, so DevOps, let's, let's just get some quick definitions out of the way. So from the, uh, the sort of the set of information that uh, is canonical for this, which is, of course, Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> mm. DevOps is uh, a set of software development practices that combine software development, dev, and information technology operation, ops, to shorten the system's development lifecycle while delivering features, fixes, and updates frequently in close alignment with business objectives. Now, from a an academic purpose, the Software Engineering Institute has a what I think is a far nicer definition, which is uh, DevOps is a, a set of practices intended to reduce the time between committing a change to a system and the change being placed into normal production while ensuring high quality. Um, I, I personally prefer that definition, but it's used in many different contexts and it means many different things to many different people. And uh, in terms of history, and the reason I say the last 10 years, is the first conference that uh, that talked about DevOps was DevOps Days held in Ghent in Belgium. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, shout out to your people, Jan. <laughs> uh, Belgian power. <laughs> um, so, yeah, not just beer, DevOps as well is famous there. Um when you look so at definitions, uh, I always want to look at why did they make this? What was a the problem they were trying to solve? Well, clearly, it's it's the it's the gif, isn't it? It's the the gif of the the small child walking away from the uh, the, the burning building. Um, worked fine in dev or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, it's the throwing <laughs> over the hedge thing. Yeah, yeah, um, and I think we, this has been. It's a combination of a lot of things, right? It's a combination of sort of agile methodologies, and we've had a number of a number of discussions on uh, agile development in all its various forms before but it, it's also yeah this this kind of rather than the throwing over the fence it's sort of uh, having the development side of the house be closer and uh, you know more closely related to the part of the house that's actually doing the deployments and operating the systems on a day-to-day basis in order to try and generally ensure that the overall product is of higher quality without having to ensure that um, absolutely everything goes through a long, tedious kind of waterfall process that uh, everybody knows and hates. that fair? Sounds sensible? 
agree so disagree certainly sensible yeah no definitely um because uh, in the old days um if you would then create an application um and you would throw it over the wall um that's not really helpful right because the you need to know what application does uh, how it behaves um to make it for example uh, work reliable but also for, from the other side is that uh, to to make it scale um, the application development team uh, needs to know uh, what they can um, do about it. So what I mean by that is, uh, for example, uh, scalability, uh, horizontal scaling is not something uh, you can magically, magically add to your product. So you need to basically architect your application uh, that it will behave um, uh, horizontal scalable or or auto scaling for example in a production environment um, and uh, to do that you need to speak a common language and i think that uh, a lot of the devops tools chain helps you uh, to ease that communication uh, barrier between uh, development and operation yep so if we're talking about this um the the JetBrains survey specifically, and we'll we'll have yeah. links to it in the uh, in the show notes. It's kind of broken up into a few a few sort of sections. So that there's a uh, a key takeaways and fun facts. There's a a demographics and, and methodology um, section. There's uh, and the, there's sort of a bunch of things around things like uh, team tools. You know what. Um, continuous integration systems or issue tracking systems people are using uh, databases and kind of devops um there's a particular section on devops itself but i mean where do we want to start should we take a look at the 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 key takeaways and see if there's anything particularly surprising there <laughs> well, one of the things that um i would like to start with is uh talking about okay for, and they asked the developers, how much are you actually yeah. involved in infrastructure development? And uh, what you see there is, uh, you, you see a lot of people talking about DevOps. So you almost assume that everybody's doing DevOps, but you <laughs> maybe. Uh, but actually there, there, what you see is that one third didn't, uh, have only heard about it. So are not practicing yeah. DevOps. Uh, so they're not uh, involved in any infrastructure development. Um, or scripting or anywise, there is a large segment that is actually involved to some extent, but there is only a one-fifth of every respondent who is really uh, deeply involved in infrastructure development. So what what you see about that is that the market is not uh, super mature in that sense. Yeah. Uh, so there are not all organizations have gone full-blown DevOps. Um, and, and that is also something I, I tend to see at, at, uh, at companies um, is that there, there is always a kind of a curve. There, there are some teams that are very far ahead and uh, started with, with automation like 10 years ago and have a high maturity. And there's some folks that are just starting out. It's the same with, with for example, agile methodologies. There are still companies yep. in the world that are just starting uh, working agile. So uh, the future is uh, not evenly divided in that sense. Yeah, I mean, it's a very 
it's all, almost a very typical bell curve, isn't it? The the sort of the largest chunk, nearly fifty percent of the the seven thousand people queried. I'm involved to some extent, which covers a multitude of sins. It could be like I'm occasionally consulted to I touch production once a week, or I you know, there's just kind of yeah, it's yeah, it's it's spectacularly vague, and I think that's one of the. Um, the issues I have a little bit with this survey that we'll go sort of through in uh, a bit more depth as we go through the different sections, but it's I'm not quite sure how I would want it to be split out, but this seems to be a, um, a, a not a particularly uh, great way to split this because I'm involved to some extent, just seems so vague mm. and... Uh, yeah, I'm not quite not quite sure that it's it's as informative as perhaps it immediately sort of suggested is. Yeah, and this is another thing I, I was thinking about when I read this one, and that's the whole infrastructure as a service thing that's uh, gaining traction these days. Let's say today, yeah. if you're really modern and you're very involved in infrastructure, you still will not be using Bosch's or shells or PowerShells. You will do it all through Terraform, Puppet Ansible, whatever. Yeah. So infrastructure yeah. has become a very intangible thing today as well. So looking at how they, as you say, the wording here is a bit, uh, yeah, hard to interpret correctly, I think. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think yeah. some of that is probably just the the way that surveys get built, right? They're, they're trying to make sure that as many people as possible exactly. can actually at least tick yes to something there. Um, and I think to 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 that point, the next um, sort of question, which is which literally had me um, spitting blood, I think, when I kind of read it was. Um, what configuration management tools do you slash your organization use? And, and it, there is. What, well, what got me kind of um, really quite irritated was was not the fact that, you know, Ansible has a certain percentage and Puppet has a certain percentage and Chef and Salt and Custom Solutions, but that apparently 43% of people have no form of configuration management at all. And I just, I just find that insane. And I can't work out whether that means that they just don't understand what configuration management is, or they they do automated deployment in such a way that it's using, you know, uh, you know, native uh, cloud technologies that they don't consider it to be configuration management because it's baked into the images. Or it, I, I don't understand. But what I do know is that if forty three percent of companies are not using any form of configuration management, then 43% of those people deserve to burn. And all of their stuff needs to fall over and they need to start from scratch with configuration management because it's just wrong. educated. I mean, burn is a bit harsh, I think. Uh, I think I think a burning is an education. <laughs> I will keep it in mind next time I teach something. <laughs> so next time I offer to educate you, you'll know what's coming. Um, I mean, I, I, well, I'm a little well, bit. I, I noticed that you you feel strongly about this topic, so that that is very Do you? good. Do Very good for the discussion. <laughs> yeah, there, I'm glad some, that's come I, across. I, I, I get some sense of it. Yeah, it, it, it's very subtle, but yeah, it comes across. Yeah, it's the British subtle. <laughs> um, <hit>, so. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, but um, it's actually quite funny because uh, when I have uh, discussions and also in the past around tooling choice, 
um, I get a sense, the same passion around just selecting those tools in companies, right? Because the thing is you need to go as one organization or at least a lot of organizations have the feeling, yeah, we need to make this choice. It needs to be the right one. And we need to make sure that everybody, everybody in our company adopts the same standards. So uh, when you have uh, multiple options that look very similar you get a kind of a religious war around it and um, the same feeling you have on the people that are not using configuration management you sometimes get uh, people uh, to have when they see somebody for example using puppets when they're all ansible and uh, or the chef um, for the people that use salt uh, so that that's yeah. always funny to see um, and in, in those sense, uh, in that sense, I, I never have like a very strong feeling around it. It's more like, okay, just use the one that's most popular. Try yeah. it out. If it works in your situation, be practical. If it doesn't work, uh, look at some alternatives. And um, but don't be so religious about it. But it's it, it always gets into that Vim versus Emacs, GIF versus GIF types of discussions. It's it's really funny. Um, so I don't I don't, do do I don't disagree about that. I don't disagree with you at all, but I think that the clarification is that at least if someone is having a you know a religious war is probably a bit of a strong word, but a strong sentence. But if someone is having a strong debate over a choice of technology, that's cool. That's brilliant. That means that there are two people there that each have an opinion that one of those technologies or the other one should be used. And that's great. But my issue here is that 43% of people are either debating, still debating and having done nothing about it, which is just insane, or are just doing nothing about it full stop. Um, it's not that they're debating, should we go Ansible or should we go Puppet? They don't have anything today. And I think my strongest kind of point here is that if you don't have anything, it almost doesn't really matter what you pick because anything that you pick in this space that is currently used is going to be hugely better than nothing at all. Um, the The number of organizations that I've seen have you know serious production problems because they didn't have things in any kind of configuration management platform or oh we just implemented that as a as a quick and dirty hack or you know oh we we just run a, a bash script when our systems get built and that takes care of it or you know there's there's all kinds of really poor excuses that organizations have and it's it's just not good enough especially as we go towards this uh, this case where systems are being you know sprung up and torn down you know even faster with you know cloud adoption and kubernetes and all those kind of things you know if you're not if you're not doing some form of configuration management then you're just not going to survive again in my opinion which i think i've made fairly clear but yeah <laughs> i i, I just yeah, if if you're not if you're not doing some configuration management, you need to have a long, hard look at yourself and understand why that is. Because I, unless unless I'm missing something, and the the that forty three percent of people that bearing in mind these are people that have responded to a DevOps mm-hmm. um, survey, you know, I, I, unless I'm missing something, and or they're missing something, and they they don't see what they are doing as DevOps because it's 
packaged as as code in images maybe but then to me that would suggest well that would be in the other camp rather than exactly. nothing at all so i don't know i this is what this is kind of either the the largest issue i have with this entire survey or the largest issue i have with all 7000 well 43% <laughs> of the 7000 of the audience yeah yeah indeed indeed yeah yeah that that would be indeed um, Let's hope it's the survey. Uh, let's hope the world is safe. Nope, because I actually think the forty-three percent is very good. I'd ex- I'd expected fifty, sixty, seventy percent there. Oh God, because don't say that. The thing you're forgetting, guys, is that DevOps is a cost that will be repaid. It will pay dividends in the long run. But when you're a small team of two people building the next greatest thing, the next Google, the next Facebook, whatever, you want something out of the door as fast as possible. And who cares? Maybe next month we don't exist anymore. Okay, everybody stop. Let's start deploying Puppet and Ansible and stuff like that. Make chef recipes and build everything up so that we can have it all. What? No, no, we have to get this out tomorrow. The thing is that if you're small and just starting up, if you're in a cloud environment, you mentioned already, Dave, you're different because then you're already in that DevOps mindset because the public cloud kind of forces that on top of you. And if you're not there, this whole thing about DevOps, it's seen very wrongly, <laughs> but it's seen <laughs> as a cost without a real benefit in the short run. And yeah, we've got some capital. We need to have something out the door now and we'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. And if you but, look but at how people many... that are using the JetBrains tools, these are tools, I mean, if you would ask the same questions to people using the, the whole expensive Visual Studio suite from Microsoft, you'll have a different kind of people there because the yeah. PyCharm, I use PyCharm, I don't use Visual Studio. Why? Because it's free, it's easy, and I don't have to spend three months learning how the tool works to make a program, which in Visual yeah. Studio, trust me, it's not that, in my opinion, it's not that easy to use. So there's a difference there as well. So there's a lot of startups, beginners, um, how do you, what's the word I'm looking for, um, indie development going on here that simply don't have the, the long-term, I'm not going to say view, because they probably have the view, but the long-term viability yet to justify getting deep into that. What do you think? But, but see, I, I, I think I would disagree with that okay. because like, surely all of those those organizations, those kind of small startup, you know, uh, ten, you know, single digits to tens of people kind of size organizations, like surely they are going to be doing everything in the cloud. I mean, they're not going to spin up yes. a whole bunch of, of hardware, are they? Surely. Um, when I say in the cloud, like I do mean more than have a VM running, right? In the cloud for me means yeah. using things like load balancers and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kubernetes, for instance, uh, Docker container environments, definitely something that comes up there because that kind of needs a DevOps approach because you have these microservices yeah. running around. But if you're not going to that and just have, uh, no, I've got my credit card, I went to Amazon, I, I bought a couple of EC2 instances because I don't have a server at home and I'm starting to type code, uh, that's not really going to the cloud. That's just using remote servers. Sure. But all the starters start, start that know. way. <laughs> Mm, maybe, but yeah. if we look, if my, you look my, at the, my opinion there is, the, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, if you look at the like the demographics and the methodology, like they like sixty nine percent of these folks are fully employed by a company or an organisation. Seventy five percent of them are 
developers, programmers, software engineers, um, and 44% of them are at the sort of middle level of, or 44% of them at the middle level of their organization and 34% of them at the senior level of their organization. And 29% of that are um, t- uh, organizations of 50 to uh, 51 to 500 people. Okay. So that it's not the, it's not the like the, the small, you know, two people and their dog kind of developing code. That's like two to 10 people is less than 12% of this survey. So, okay. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, but I think you, you could be right in that 61% of the development or 61% of the development that these companies do is apparently product development. So that, yeah, it is, it is people that are building products or technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what, what you going to say? Yeah, I think, uh, so So regardless, I think if you are a small startup nowadays, um, if I look at all the tooling that's available, um, all the managed services that you nowadays have available in the cloud, I think it is much easier than in the past of creating that startup that will scale um, when you actually are going to be picked up and be a hype and a trend. Yeah, so... And if you, it is quite easy to get started with, for example, Kubernetes um, on a cloud provider where it's fully managed. And just using those tools already makes it very easy for, um, if you come from a developer background, to actually have a reasonably scalable infrastructure um, if you used all those cloud services. So uh, regardless um, of whether people are now using it, uh, yes or no, I do think that those 43% of the people that are not using it, uh, they will have much better time nowadays than they would have 15 years ago. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, 15 years ago, you had to write all your own scripting. Now you can just download something and have all the recipes already pre-written and uh, just that just work. I mean, I've got a little thing here at home and I have a couple of servers running around. I've got a puppet environment. I haven't written a single puppet script yet. I just pick it up what I need and it just runs. It's great. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> now, looking at the page that you're looking at, Dave, when you just named all those numbers, I have a question mm. about the last two. Because 29% say that they've been doing this for 11 years, and 41% <laughs> is in the 21 to 29 age bracket. <laughs> yeah. I'm not quite sure how those numbers actually work out. The other interesting one I thought was. Um, if you look at so, the you've got nineteen percent of people have been working in IT for six and te, six to ten years, and then you've got you know twenty nine percent eleven plus years. So you've got basically fifty percent of of the uh, of this total you know, thereabouts has been doing this for between you know six to eleven plus years. I mean, if you've been doing IT for at least six years, I would expect something as as simple and basic as config management to be fairly well baked in at this point but yeah but you're also taking along the habits that you started with of 10 years ago when this was not a thing and hey we didn't need this before when i was young so we don't need it no that's (laughs) but that's not true because config management's been around for a long time i mean uh your puppet is maybe um sort of waning a little bit now but you know back Back 
well over 10 years ago, um, you know, Puppet was hot stuff and things like CF Engine were sort of, were waning a little bit. And, you know, probably CF Engine is one of the earlier configuration management platforms that really had kind of serious wide-scale adoption. Um, Still the best. But it, See if I did too, mm. then. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think it's... it's it's uh, Is it like fine wine? Does it, you yes. know, does it appreciate with age? age? Okay. Yeah. Right. Hey, don't Good. forget that Chef so. and Puppet are actually spin-offs of uh, CF Engine, right? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that, and I'm going to move on to my next point, which was <laughs> that... Um, again, towards the bottom of that particular page, you can see that of the nineteen more than 19,000 people who participated in the developer ecosystem survey, but of the responses, only 6,993 respondents were included in this, res- this report, which is sort of interesting. They, they do actually go into why they've done that down selection, but it does make me wonder what the numbers would have looked like if they'd left everybody in. And I, I kind of, I'd love for there to be like a toggle that you could flip to like <laughs> show me everything the and to show me your curated results or or even something like, you know, yeah. if, if, they, if they, they talk about the fact that a certain number of academic um, responses came in and that sort of thing. So, you know, if you could, you know, flip a switch to show, show me the results with just with the academics removed and just the the sort of the businesses. Or yeah, I don't know. I think it you can do you can do so much with with data. And you know, we're I'm ranting and raving about one particular sort of set of of information, but that actually could look you know very very different if 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 maybe that whole nineteen thousand set of people were were in there. So I don't know. It's just it's a bit of a bit of a strange strange situation in my opinion. Well well I see that raw data is coming soon. So um and I believe John is very good at creating fancy dashboards that are interactive. Oh that's an excellent um, plan. The Roaring Elephant like... DevOps survey with data <laughs> <and> budget brains. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let yeah, you we guys can zoom in into uh, the, the exact people that said no to configuration <laughs> management. <laughs> yep. Hopefully they share the email addresses and we can personally mail them and yeah. set them straight. Yep. Educate them. Don't Educate them a bit really work. hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, thankfully, due to uh, the uh, sort of personally identifiable information and uh, everybody can so concerned about GDPR, there's probably not going to be that information there, but never mind. Um, so if we we sort of uh, possibly meandering around this topic a little bit, um, but I mean, any any particular surprises you think in terms of the server templating? Docker at sixty two percent. That doesn't surprise me whatsoever. Uh, that's in the no, DevOps heading, right? Yeah, we're back. Hop, hopped back to the DevOps now. That's it. Just yes. Why why would it be anything else? Um, uh, it's the wrong, it's the wrong question that, again. I mean, this is Kubernetes. This is not Docker. This is Kubernetes. Uh, Kubernetes, Docker Swarm. <laughs> all of the microservices things are using Docker or the the Mobi variant. If you want to be total open source, uh, but Vagrant is not the same thing as Docker. That, no, 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 no. But no, this is this is together. This is server templating. What we're talking about here, the tool set stuff is further down below, which is splitting up between Kubernetes, Docker Swarm, Mesos, 
blah, blah, blah. So this is subtly different to that. Yeah, but nobody's uh, yeah, choosing exactly. Docker over Vagrant because of Docker or Vagrant capabilities. They're choosing Docker because Docker works well with the, the, the provisioning sure. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 and Vagrant, like like you mentioned, I think already is is it's really uh, meant for more than containers. So I, th I think it can nowadays do containers, uh, but it started out as an automation tool uh, for VirtualBox, um, and yeah. the the aim was to provide a consistent development environment across uh, multiple operating systems with kind of the same workflow. So that Vagrant had slightly different goals, uh, or still has slightly different goals than Docker, in that sense. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. And, and what's also I'd... quite interesting is that, uh, for example, you also see Packer and CoreOS uh, in the list. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. uh, for example, Packer um, is kind of a bridge between your legacy Ansible scripts and uh, containers. Um, so it allows you to to create an image um, and not a multi-layered image like you have, for example, with uh, Docker, but a single layer image. And you can just use your provisioning tools like you already have. So Ansible and Chef. So it sounds to me like um, it is something that's very useful if you already have, for example, a lot of a big library of uh, existing scripts mm -hmm. to, to provision those images uh, without needing to con uh, completely migrate all your scripts into uh, a Docker file uh, syntax. But Packer also creates yeah, containers, good. not uh, virtual machines. It contains uh, images um, uh, that can probably be used as a container image, but I'm not sure. Because Vagrant is usually used uh, in combination with Chef to make virtual machines, like you said with VirtualBox. Uh, that's where it kind of started with that thing. Uh, Packer, I don't know, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, and what you see with all those tools is, is like they're, they're started out as a specific solution for one thing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, when they mature, you see uh, they're also uh, doing all kinds of stuff uh, that the other tools did. Uh, so like I said, with Vagrant, was really focused on specifically creating images in VirtualBox, but now also supports, for example, Docker. Uh, so you see, you see still some some of that uh, also. Um, Core OS was also, by the way, you, uh, mentioned, and that's that's quite funny that it is uh, still there. Um, so it was actually launched as a kind of a more secure, interoperable alternative to Docker, um, and that's not a bad idea uh, because you you might have heard about some recent uh, CVEs on Docker. Uh, Docker had quite a lot of vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. um, Docker, for example, I think required you to run software as root. Yep. I think that is resolved qu quite a long time ago already. Docker did catch up to a lot of the stuff that CoreOS did. Uh, but you still see that Docker has a lot of uh, big vulnerabilities uh, nowadays. So uh, recently uh, it was possible to, I, I think it was early this year, uh, to gain host root access mm -hmm. uh, quite easily. So that uh, yeah, that is something to to consider when you're running Docker, and especially when you're you're running stuff uh, that you don't fully trust. Yeah, but circling back again, people want to use Kubernetes or Swarm or whatever, so they will be using Docker. Because if you if you if you don't want to use Docker, if you want to use something else, what kind of orchestration um, layer do you have then? Uh, so. Core OS, for example, is actually uh, fully interoperable uh, or fully supported by Kubernetes. 
Yeah, so you don't need to default. use the Docker engine. It's not the default. Exactly. No. So it's harder to start using it, and that's, in my opinion, Docker isn't. Uh, that's what I tried to say before: is that Docker isn't being used that often because it's such a great thing. I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying it is. It's being used a lot because it's easy because these higher level abstraction layers like a Kubernetes and stuff have, have standardized on Docker. So everybody who does this stuff, well, well, let's use Docker because, as you said at the beginning of the podcast. Use the stuff that everybody uses, so that you have a lot of information, documentation, other people doing the same thing. We can have questions answered. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually want to mention PHP as a good example of something that mm-hmm. is uh, has been used a lot, but it is really bad oh, no. uh, from a development <laughs> perspective. So I'm, I'm probably going to anger maybe a lot of people <laughs> here uh, on the podcast, but yes. uh, it, it is um, it is. Uh, not, I, I think. I think people that that uh, program PHP, they they know that uh, as well. I think it's it is easy to get started with. A lot of people in the past started with it and had some f- uh, good results fast. But if you mature, I think as a programmer, you will see some of the the limitations there. Um, and uh, I'm not comparing PHP to Docker per se. Uh, I think Docker is no, a little I bit like more it. serious than than PHP. But it just shows yep. that if something is popular, it doesn't need to be the, the best. most technical best solution, right? Yeah, you may look at WordPress. Everybody uses WordPress as a PHP thing. It's horrible if your site gets bigger. I know, because the yeah. Roaring Elephants website is a bit of WordPress site, so I'm <laughs> fighting with it from time to time. <laughs> right, yeah. And... and um, so, okay, Docker is there, there, of course, the clear winner in, in server templating, right? So 90% uh, that are using server templating are using Docker. So that, that is a clear winner. Uh, what you see, for example, if you look at infrastructure provisioning tools, um, there is a little bit more variety there. So you see folks using Terraform, CloudFormation, OpenStack Heat, Cloudify, Tosca, and um, but also a lot of people are and, and probably Dave will get angry at that number is 65% doesn't use any infrastructure provision tool. Uh, yes yeah <laughs> um, yeah uh, I've, I've expanded all of my expended sorry all of my ire I, I have none left but yeah it, it I do wonder what people are how people are deploying stuff if they're not using tools to provision it they can't surely they just can't be randomly clicking through stuff to provision everything that they do. It can't be a thing. Uh, yeah, but would you say that if I'm using Pixie Boot combined with a Puppet or Chef server, is that a infrastructure provisioning tool? Or is that not? Yeah, I would say yes. I would Therefore, s- it's an other. I would think that people think that's none because Pixie Boot is a, quote, uh, air quotes here, hardware thing. It's not a tool. It's not a software thing. So I'm kind well, of thinking maybe that. It's a, maybe, again, maybe it's a poor poor survey but i i would certainly categorize that as infrastructure provisioning tools having there's a huge difference between a terraform and a pixie boot environment right i mean there's no way sure. that that's even in the same category there so that's why i'm thinking that maybe because if you have more than a hundred servers or more than a dozen servers and you're not doing a pixie boot environment at, at the least uh yeah. yeah well have fun yeah yeah I mean, uh, by the way, about infrastructure uh, provisioning tools. So at Terraform is, is one of the most used ones. Uh, I was listening yesterday to a new episode of another podcast called Streaming in the Cloud with mm-hmm. uh, Corey Quinn. 
And he had the uh, CTO of HashiCorp on, um, Mitchell Hashimoto. And it, he, they really had a very interesting discussion, not so much about Terraform, but specifically around, okay, uh, how real is multi-cloud adoption? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, how does Terraform uh, facilitate that? Uh, I found it a very interesting discussion. Um, not going to repeat the exact discussion here, but uh, what was really inter- interesting to see is that uh, they were talking about, okay, full workload portability. Um uh, so the idea that you, for example, if you use a tool like Terraform uh, that can uh, su- that supports multi-cloud, so either on-prem, but also all kinds of cloud providers like all the big ones, um, you would magically be able to transfer your workload from one uh, cloud provider to another cloud provider. Um, and I think uh, Michel Hashimoto really made a really good case there why that is something you probably don't want. Um, and uh, yeah, I would really point out, uh, listen to that episode. I think he made a very good case why that is uh, maybe not the goal you need to look at when you're doing infrastructure provisioning. Uh, can you summarize a little bit? <laughs> yeah, sure. So the, um, the, the thing is that um, it just costs a lot to make... Um, a deployment that works on every cloud because there's so much thing uh, so there's so much to gain from just focusing on an automated deployment on a single cloud making it perfect for that um, and of course uh, you can maybe reuse some stuff but it's really costly to okay. um, uh, basically create the same setup on a different cloud and um, it, for for example, just just to give you an example, if you have for example a cloud that provides a nice DNS service, and um, you write uh, Terraform scripts to um, provision that DNS service for you, uh, the other cloud provider might have a, a different type of um, DNS service that works differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you gonna implement uh, create that implementation for both cloud providers um, in the possible case that you're going to move at some point i I don't think you're you're going to do that right it you're only going to do it when you really um are pushed uh, for example uh, that uh, the company makes a big change to go that side so i i don't think i don't i think it is nice in theory but in practice i think it's more cost efficient and much more practical to really focus on an automated deployment on a single cloud environment interesting that it's uh he brought in the cost aspect because in the end I think he's talking about the same thing but the thing that I've always heard as the biggest don't go multi-cloud is uh, you're stuck with the lowest common denominator if a certain tool isn't available in one of the clouds you can't use it unless you build the whole thing yourself which is very costly and that's I think where the two arguments come together again yeah exactly so it does say that um, there, there probably is very good reasons that a company will be multi-cloud. So he's not saying that a company will not have uh, deployments on multiple clouds. It's just the the idea of workload portability is yep. something he says, well, that, that is probably uh, very interesting in theory, but quite hard in practice and doesn't give you a lot of benefit. 
it's it, yeah. it, it, it sounds to me a, a little bit of the parallels that I had in the past around object relational mappers. Right? So when you're a programmer, you have a relational database and you have an uh, object-oriented programming language. For that, you uh, have a system, uh, for example, Hibernate is a good example of that. And um, uh, the idea, as it was sold with, was that hey, you can move databases whenever you want. But there are some very good reasons why you don't want to abstract away database uh, because you lose a lot of performance yeah. um, and power uh, by fully abstracting it away. And I think this is very similar. Um, if you don't abstract the, 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 the cloud provider away, so and only use the common denominator of those cloud services, as you were saying, John, um, uh, if, if you're, you're losing out on yeah. a lot of power uh, and that's a bit of waste. Yeah, but on the other hand, if you have a, a use case which works brilliantly on BigQuery, well, run that thing on Google Cloud. Don't try to rebuild it on some other cloud that doesn't have that specific service. So look at uh, what you're saying, I think, is look at the different uh, tools that you can use and where they're available and put that workload where that tool is available, even if that's different clouds. As long as your data gravity doesn't get in the way, there shouldn't be a, re a reason not to do that. Because that could actually make you yeah, more agile, more faster. Uh, yeah, it would be positive, not negative. Yeah. Point. So, I, I think where where some of that story kind of falls apart a little bit is ah. where, you know, due to the rise of Kubernetes and you know, Azure have got the Azure Kubernetes service, Amazon have got uh, Elastic Kubernetes service, Google Google have got uh, Kubernetes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Google have got <laughs> Kubernetes, GKE. So we now have a consistent, uh, I don't know, call it runtime, if you like, uh, across all of the cloud providers, or at least it's getting there. It, it's not quite there in the case that some of them are better than others, should we say, depending on your perspective. But I think that some of those, some of those arguments are... Um, perhaps a bit less um, potent than they were, or potent now than they were previously. I think the availability of Kubernetes as a service for organizations to consume it is going to change that picture. Um, and certainly, I can see that as, you know, firsthand from something that, um, you know, my current employer is doing, which is don't really care which uh, which cloud our hosted service runs on. Mm -hmm. um, could run on any of them. And we have ways to plug into each of the native cloud providers' technologies where we need to. So I think the I I think where we are today that that sort of sand is shifting, that, that ground is shifting. Uh, I don't think it'll shift for everybody. I think yeah, people that that, uh, that just want to consume the services as they come from the cloud providers that's probably going to continue to be the case and going deep in a particular cloud provider is probably the simplest, easiest way. I think for some organizations, there is a, an interesting middle ground kind of developing where consumption of Kubernetes just simplifies a lot of things that previously, if you were just you know deploying stuff on EC2, then that would be a very different ex experience to deploying it on, um, you know, on, on Azure or on Google Cloud. Hmm. I, I think did, did you actually I, know where the Kubernetes name came from? Um, <laughs> Sidetracking the conversation. <laughs> I 
did, but I must admit it's not coming to me immediately. You, John? I'm Googling it. <laughs> ah, no, that's cheating. That's cheating. Not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> ah, helmsman so, pilot. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that is indeed, I think, the, the definition of Kubernetes. Uh, however, no, it, it's actually a Kubernetes set comes from Google's Borg system, or at least yeah. it was very heavily yeah. uh, inspired by it. Uh, yeah. Borg, um, everybody that knows Star Trek, Borg, uh, those were not very friendly people. Oh, um, <laughs> if they would uh, assimilate you, right? So uh, for the open source project, they thought, okay, let, let's choose a little bit of friendly, friendlier name. So uh, the project was initially named Project Seven of Nine um, as one of the characters of Star Trek um, Discovery. Yeah? And um, uh, Seven of Nine, uh, so uh, nine, uh, the number, um, and, and you see that I think back in that Kubernetes logo is, um, uh, uh, so, so it's now uh, mentioned that Kubernetes is the friendlier version of Borg. Um, that was the way they uh, they made it a little bit more uh, consumable, assimilatable. You mean? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're we're running a little bit long. So I want to make sure we kind of wrap through the last few yeah. uh, elements in the the tool set yeah. piece. So I I kind of the the container orchestration. It's kind of no surprise that. 29% the largest percentage is Kubernetes and everything else is far smaller. But the thing that I would kind of focus on is the next one, which is how how can that how can the numbers 51% of people are doing private servers, 48% of people are doing cloud services, and 47% of people are doing locally and 1% are doing other. Um, those numbers are, you know, nearly 150%. So I don't quite understand uh, what's happening there. Private cloud is a cloud service that runs locally? No. But that would mean there's only 1% of people doing stuff in the public clouds. Yeah. yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah so, so this was definitely a multiple choice question, right? So people could, yeah. could uh, answer multiple times. And that's, all, I think, also the, the key takeaway here is that um, a, a lot of people are using a kind of a hybrid setup. Yeah, yeah. So, and it could be hybrid in the in the sort of the, the the sense of we have stuff deployed everywhere, rather than hybrid as to we have one single environment spread across on prem and cloud. Yeah, exactly. So, um, the private service, for example, um, they say, okay, I, it, it, for example, for development, I can see that happening. Um, that you have an, an, uh, a development um, environment on-prem and that you, for example, use for your uh, uh, hosting, you use the cloud services. So that, that makes sense, I think. But again, I would, I'd like to see the survey kind of reworked a little bit so that you have, like, you know, where's the majority of your serv services or something along those kind of lines. Get people to actually put a put a stake in the in the in the ground and say, "Look, this is this is where we are today." And maybe there's a second question, which is, "Where do you expect the the majority of your services to be in twelve months' time?" Sure, but I just I just don't think that the results kind of really help with sort of yeah, basically fifty percent of people are doing everything. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, statistics yeah. and surveys, you know, they're lies, they're yeah. lies and, uh, and survey people. <laughs> Pretty much. And then the, the final one, which uh, final, um, final. I think will be no surprise to anybody, nearly 70% of people are using AWS, with 28% of people um, on Google Cloud Platform and 21% on Azure. And then everything else is kind of fairly small below that. Um, which is... The only surprising thing here is is sort of Google having overtaken Azure, um, and there's a, a note to the side which is uh, talking about um, the fact that it's, it's probably accelerated by Kubernetes users and people using um, GKE. So, yeah, I think this also has a bit of influence on the who, who got the questionnaire because uh, Google is smaller than Azure. That's just a fact. I mean. Gardner says it, everybody says it. So, but the, again, the people that are using things like IntelliJ, PyCharm, RubyMine, the 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 chat yeah. stuff are the open source people, are the, the 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 smaller groups who will gravitate more easily towards a cheap Amazon or the more uh, tech um, hype savvy Google. So, I think there's a bit of a uh, misrepresentation there of the reality. But again, it's a survey; it's statistics. Yeah, and and what, what I tend to see as well is yeah, what I also tend to see is that uh, Google Cloud for platform it is of of course Google is a development company right exactly. so there uh, what you see is that their Google Cloud platform if you are a developer it gives you a, really a developer centric yep. experience so they have very good APIs they have very good. Uh, integration points and it all feels like it is the perfect environment yeah. uh, catered to a, a, a developer and I feel that Amazon Web Services uh, especially uh, when you started early with them it was really a little bit more infrastructure focused um, so I, I think that is also the reason why we see the skew here yeah. Um, and yeah like you said Dave is that now Kubernetes is very popular uh, Google is driving a lot of that Kubernetes uh, community as well um, so there's no surprise that Kubernetes is actually driving some of the growth of uh, GDC, GCP there uh, especially because of their um, managed service which um, I recently tried and was pretty good pretty easy to get started so mm-hmm. I, I can understand why uh, there's a lot of interest there yep. right well any any closing words from anybody because I think we've we've torn this to pieces a little bit and that's not our intention I don't think or wasn't my intention it's just no, there are a few things here that yeah I think there's just a few things that uh, upset me <laughs> a little bit about the survey but more of the people completing the survey or the people that were selected their results were selected that I just I just don't understand and I, I hope I hope it's a, a survey flaw rather than a, a real world representation but Jan who knows maybe you're right maybe the uh the, it is a real-world representation based on the, the skew of the data. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the database uh, topic, that will also give you that uh, a hint there. Because uh, the first graph yeah. is which database have used in the last 12 months, and Oracle is at 16%. No way, that's true. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, I don't like Oracle. I would never go for Oracle. 90% of businesses in the world are using Oracle in some fashion. Yeah, have some Oracle in some way, shape, or form. But maybe so. that's just because they haven't used it in the last 12 months. It's just there, hanging away quietly in the corner. <laughs> as long as you pay a license fee, Oracle is happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have you updated your yeah. license key in the last 12 months? <laughs> and people are not yeah. always truthful, right, in those types of uh, 
uh, questionnaires uh, because who wants to come out um, as Cobol. somebody who uses Oracle databases, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, every, everybody wants to talk about the fact that they're using Circle CI, Go, Scala, and Rust, and everything else is uh, is all legacy. I but, write uh, my own pro- damn programming language, sir. I don't need your <laughs> whatever you need. Yeah, I'm I'm just going to use magnets and just rewrite the bits on my hard drives myself. But that would mean I have to go back to spinning media. Damn it. Yeah. I anyway, use ones I use fours and threes. Okay, and on that note. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to uh, I'd like to thank Ward for for joining us today to talk about this uh, this uh, survey and give us a, a bit of a a discussion point around DevOps and some of the interesting things that we found uh, going on in the what is apparently the state of the developer ecosystem in 2019. Um, for those of you that are out there that agree or disagree or have noticed something else, um, do reach out to us, let us know, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. I hope, Ward, you enjoyed yourself a little bit. Yes, very much. Thanks for having me. You're always welcome. Definitely. And with that... Yeah, and, and uh, before before you uh, let me go, uh, when yeah. is going to be the, the uh, DevOps survey from Roaring Elephant 2020? Uh, uh, that's going to be just after the next LinkedIn post by Dave. So 20-70-something. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, let's see. LinkedIn. <laughs> www. Okay. Create a post. Uh, yep. So all it'll right, be coming right. soon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, nice talking to you. I'm going to go back uh, to my uh, uh, dad ops. Huh? Uh, so back to my kids and uh, talk to you yep. soon, guys. Thanks. All right. Take care. Cheers, Ward. And that's it for the interview with uh, Ward about the state of developer ecosystems in 2019 and everything else we kind of ranted about. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as usual, we didn't stay too much on topic, but that's uh, how people are expecting us to behave, I guess, by now. I I think so. I think everybody knows our particular kind of spiel by now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, big thank you to Ward for being on the show again. And unless you have anything else to add... I don't think so. I don't think so. Please, if you're listening to us on YouTube, then uh, subscribe to the channel. We're we're on our journey towards 100 subscribers. We've got a little bit to go, but, uh, you know, go and find the Roaring Elephant channel, subscribe to it, hit that notification bell, like it, all those kind of things. Definitely. And also, if you want to support this podcast, help us uh, keep on doing this. You can become a Patreon. There's a link to the Patreon site on our site as well. So click that link and have a look at what wonderful things you can get by just becoming a patron of the Roaring Elephant podcast. Right. Uh, I think I said about everything you do normally do in our normal uh, outro. So I'm not going to read the whole thing and just say that uh, my name is John. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>